You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD+, even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD+. Check out Qualia NAD+, risk-free, for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. What if there was a way to level up your energy, get rid of stress, and take more control of your body? Welcome to Quantum Upgrade. This is a new technology that taps into quantum energy to help you feel amazing. Quantum Upgrade has a lot of different products that help protect you from EMF and help activate your body's natural healing abilities. You can expect better sleep, more resilience, less stress, and better blood flow. The cool thing about Quantum Upgrade is that the products are backed by a lot of heavy-duty scientific studies, and there's a new measurable upgrade. You can now use Quantum Upgrade to increase your consciousness levels between 1,400 and 2,200 on the Hawkins map of consciousness. If you don't know what that means, do some research because it's impressive, it's fun to learn about, and it's something that I've come to understand. Ready to try Quantum Upgrade? Visit quantumupgrade.io slash Dave for a seven-day free trial. Today's cool fact of the day is that in a study of rats whose genes were mutated so that they lacked sweet taste receptors, the rats still heavily preferred drinking sugar water to plain water. And that's definitely not just due to taste because the same results didn't occur when they put sucralose in the water, which is also sweet. So the researchers think that the rats experienced dopamine spikes in their brains only after having the real sugar water, That means that the calories may be psychologically, rather than just sensory, delicious. In other words, you kind of feel like you want those calories. Everyone's talking about red light therapy beds, and for good reason. There's a company called ARRC LED that's building an entirely new class of LED devices. ARRC LED beds integrate proprietary scanning technology and frequency protocols to shape the delivery of six different wavelengths in dose-optimized photobiomodulation. Yes, that's a lot of words. What it is, though, is that photobiomodulation improves the underlying energetics of the cells in your body. And those changes can benefit nearly every tissue and organ and system in your body. You change your cells and you change your life. For more information, visit ARRCLED.com. If you were at the Bulletproof Conference this year, I gave a whole talk about how low levels of ketones can affect the brain and affect your hunger hormone levels. And that's totally relevant because today's guest is all about cravings. His new book is called Always Hungry, Conquer Cravings, Retrain Your Fat Cells, and Lose Weight Permanently. And that's coming out in January of 2016. Um, His name is uh, David Ludwig. He's a MD, a PhD, a practicing pediatrician and researcher at Boston's Children's Hospital. He's also a professor of pediatrics at the Harvard Medical School and professor of nutrition at the Harvard School of Public Health. 
Uh, technically, I think this makes him a total nutrition badass. Um, is that actually the case, Dr. Ludwig? <laughs> well, I'll defer to you as the expert on badassness, but uh, thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm really excited because it's not so common to get people who are practicing and researching and looking at nutrition and full medical work. So it's a, it's a really cool combination of things that that you've got going on and it's a really great gig I, you know <laughs> I, I like my day job how did you get into that strange mix of things it's a very useful mix but it's, it's unusual how did you get there you know i've always been very sensitive and aware of food okay. um although i was raised you know in the in the seven you know in the 60s and 70s as a kid when uh fortunately diets weren't as bad as they are today for kids but you know, after school, the ice cream truck would come along and, you know, we were already getting um, candies and sweets that had long lists of artificial ingredients. And I, you know, I ate them like everybody else, but I just always sensed that, you know, I never really felt good about that. And um, I also come from a very politically active family. My parents were, some of my earliest recollections were being a uh, taken to civil rights demonstrations <laughs> and, and anti-war protests. So I also, you know, became, you know, very politically aware. Uh, I got interested in science and medicine. And all of these interests converged after I finished my training as, a, as an endocrinologist. Because, you know, it turns out that food has fundamental relevance to our biology, of course. It's also a highly political issue. You know, every time we eat... We are making a, a powerful political statement to the food industry as to you know, what we want and what we don't want. Um, and so I've, I've really found that my day job can inc include both clinical medicine, seeing patients relevant to nutrition and health, research, politics, and public health advocacy. Public health advocacy. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I having trouble with that word? advocacy and um you know an advocate has to actually be able to pronounce the word um and so it's really uh, i feel like that's sort of in my genes it's in your genes and and you selected uh, medicine so so you did medicine first then nutrition or you did them at the same time uh, i started uh initially i was thinking i was going to be a straight scientist then i got interested in medical medicine went to medical school um and at the same time being a glutton for punishment uh, got a doctorate as well, um, okay. and then um, got interested in uh, endocrinology. But endocrinology is a field wh which doesn't incorporate any of the standard assumptions of nutrition. You know, we're not. I wasn't taught as an endocrinologist to think of food as a delivery system of calories <laughs> and nutrients. Um, and I became interested in how food affects our hormones, yeah. which are powerful. Every time we eat hormones, not just insulin, but dozens of other hormones and related substances change in profoundly different ways. And these hormones, in turn, alter our metabolism and literally the expression of our genes. That, so the notion of food as medicine is quite literally true because virtually every pathway that exists in the body that can be exploited for drugs were there originally in a direct or indirect fashion to integrate food with our physiology. Wow, so that really does blur the line between food and drugs, doesn't it? 
Well, we can use food as a drug um, for better and for worse. Yeah. You know, we did a study uh, relating to, to the study you announced at the beginning of the hour. Um, we looked at, uh, this was a double-blind study, which is difficult to do in nutrition because typically people and the researchers see what's, what's being eaten. But in this case, we made two milkshakes that had the same calories, the same protein, fat, and carbohydrate. In one case, uh, it was fast-acting carbohydrate, and the other case, slow-digesting carbohydrate. So we gave these milkshakes to, in random order to our participants um, on separate days, followed their blood sugar, and as expected, saw that they had higher blood sugar initially after the fast-acting carbohydrate shake. Uh, blood sugar tended to crash a few hours later. At that point, the participants reported feeling hungrier. And then we did brain scans. And the results were really remarkable. I'm not a neuroscientist. It turned out that one area, and I didn't know what this area was at first, lit up like a laser. On, in every single subject, more, so it lit up after the, the fast-acting or high glycemic index shake, but not after the low. In fact, it was so consistent that we had astronomically strong statistical power. And that area was the nucleus accumbens. You know, so for the rest of uh, the, your audience who, like me, aren't neuroscientists, that's the center of the dopaminergic reward pleasure center of the brain. Wow. It's ground zero, considered ground zero for the classic addictions of cocaine, heroin, alcoholism, and the like, raising a provocative idea that, um, you know, well, certainly we need food to live. So food addiction is very controversial. But um, raising the possibility that these highly processed, very rapidly digesting industrial foods we're eating today can hijack fundamental pleasure and reward systems of the brain. Now, it's one thing to feel hungry because your blood sugar is dropping. But it's a, very, it's a different thing if your nucleus accumbens kicks in because then your ability to resist that 500 calorie bear claw <laughs> you see in the pastry shop is going to vanish. So, so hunger and cravings are a really difficult combination to fight. And I think that uh, the food industry would like to say it's all our personal responsibility to just control our calorie balance, that there are no bad foods. But I think, uh, you know, there's a quite a strong line of investigation to suggest that certain foods profoundly undermine our uh, metabolism in ways that are not all that different to certain classic drugs of addiction. There's my favorite fast food, processed food marketing slogan ever, you can't eat just one. <laughs> you, you fire up that part of the brain and literally you're going to have that drug-like response, like I've got to eat the whole bag of potato chips, not just one. And, and so you found in your study exactly which part of the brain is contributing to that, even in the absence of the blood sugar crash, right? Because you're, you're talking about a brain craving that's dopamine-based. It's a neurotransmitter, not just a glucose thing. Right. Okay. Now, that may be responding to the fact that blood sugar, and it's not just sugar, but it's also fatty acids and ketones, the total source, and th this is the, really the focus of um, the book I've, I've, I've written, um, it's the Con total concentration of calories in the blood, which are critically important. Yeah. And when they drop, the brain 
does something which is makes perfect sense from an evolutionary perspective. I mean, the brain is critically dependent upon calories. A brief interruption would lead to loss of consciousness, coma, seizure, and death. Yeah, ti- tigers and eat so, you the second you pass out in nature, like, like you're dead. Well, uh, it, it, either they'll eat you or your brain cells will right. die, and either way, it won't matter to you. Um, so the brain has very powerful mechanisms to get us to uh, make sure that the brain has enough calories. The first thing it does is make us hungry. The second thing is it starts activating craving centers. So our ability to like say no vanishes. And then um, after that, stress hormones start to be secreted, emergency stress mm-hmm. hormones that drag calories out of storage sites, but do so, and that will temporarily solve the problem, but it does so causing great stress to the body. And finally, with these swings in uh, calorie levels and hormones, if that continues, um, metabolism will actually slow down. So we did a study of um, 21 uh, young um, adults who had high body mass index, brought their weight down by 10 or 15%, which we know is a stress. They're going to feel hungry. Their metabolism is going to be slowing down. It's the body's defense mechanisms. And then we put them for a month at a time on one of three diets in a randomized fashion. So on one side of the equation was a low-fat diet, kind of what we've been recommending, government's been recommending, I should say, for, for years, 20, 20% fat, 60% carbs. The other side was a classic Atkins diet with a whopping 60% fat mm-hmm. content. And in the middle was, uh, we called it a low glycemic index, sort of a Mediterranean diet with 40% fat, 40% carb. And so we found that uh, energy, exp- so we gave them the same calories and they had the same weight. It was locked in. Energy expenditure plummeted on the low fat diet. Um, and that was expected. On the low carb diet, energy expenditure, metabolic rate, didn't drop at all. Uh, It was completely, despite the weight loss, that low-carb diet had completely abolished um, the negative effects of weight loss. And the Mediterranean diet was in the middle. And that difference was 325 calories a day. That's like an hour of moderately vigorous physical activity without lifting a finger. So I think this is, both of these studies are... um, raising uh, or providing support to the notion that all calories aren't alike metabolically and that if you simply focus on calorie restriction with the wrong foods, you're going to be setting up a battle between mind and metabolism that you're likely doomed to lose. Amen, brother. Oh, sorry. (laughs) That's what happened to me when I weighed 300 pounds. And and it's not a willpower thing. It's not a laziness thing for fat people at all and it's why i'm i'm such a fan of your of your book and uh, and and supporting you getting this message out because you've studied this a lot more than i have to be honest and, and come to a, a more of an academic research-based conclusion versus mine which is like okay i'm gonna hack this because i'm tired of being fat and tired and what you said there though is is different types of calories do different things right uh, what about, say, different types of, of protein? And did you, do you get into that at all? Uh, where saying, okay, like I had tofu versus uh, eggs. Uh, it, does it matter that much? Well, let me, let me first come back to the big picture okay. and then uh, go yeah. to that. Um, so the, the, the main premise of, of 
my, my book is simple. Uh, overeating doesn't make you fat. The process of getting fat makes you overeat. I, I love so, that. That is so good. Say that one more time so people will feel yeah, hear that. So overeating doesn't make you fat, at least over the long term. The process of getting fat makes you overeat. Now, that sounds provocative, but there's actually dozens, if not a century, of research yeah. involving literally thousands of art articles that support this argument that, bio that body weight is controlled more by our biology than our willpower. Yes. So let's, let's, walk, let's walk through this for a moment. Um, you know, we know that when you cut back on calories, let's say you're doing a, a nutrition study with human participants, you put them on starvation rations for a few weeks, they're going to lose weight. Of course, you know, that's Famine, the law of physics. Famines do that, right? That's the law of physics. Nothing about this violates physics. But what's going to happen? They're going to, what's going to happen then? They're going to get very hungry and their energy expenditure, the calories they burn off are going to plummet as the body fights back increasingly aggressively against the calorie restriction. Once the people end the study, their weight comes right back up to where it started, typically even a yeah. little higher. But the opposite is also true. You know, the, uh, there's been dozens of overfeeding studies where participants are brought into a research unit, um, locked on, locked down, and then basically force-fed very high-calorie diets. And again, of course, they gain weight. That's physics. But what also happens? They lose all interest in food. Uh, they feel very uncomfortable. And their metabolism speeds up in an attempt to shed these extra calories. The participants are as unhappy in overfeeding studies, they're as miserable in overfeeding studies as they are in underfeeding studies. Because the body has a certain weight it wants to be and defend. Now that's like a body weight set point. Yeah, there's a ghrelin level that drives that, right? Like one of the, the craving hunger hormones? Well, there's probably many, yeah. many hormones. You know, we think of these hormones like ghrelin and leptin as hunger or satiety hormones. They all have metabolic effects too. True. You know, the key actions of leptin, some of the, you know, the downstream actions may be in the body. Leptin mm -hmm. results in uh, fat cells disgorging extra calories. And we'll see why that's so critically important. Um, so, you know, just cutting back on calories fights um, basic biological systems that have evolved over hundreds of millions of years to control our body weight. Um, and um, so what we recommend is turning dieting on its head. We suggest you forget calories. Calories yes. are not a very, they're not a very useful notion. I mean, yeah. first of all, not even the world's most trained dietitian could guess <laughs> calorie balance to within 350 a day accurately. And if you were off just by 350 calories between intake and expenditure a day, that would mean the difference between remaining lean or becoming massively obese in about five years. And it begs the question, how did human populations manage to maintain stable body weights amidst an abundance of food? You know, we haven't always been living hand to foot. We had plenty of food, you know, in America in the 1960s without weight shooting up. How did we manage to maintain our body weight 
before the very notion of calories was invented. So forget calories. We uh, argue that yes. the, the only way to lose weight permanently is to shift metabolism. Yes. Is to re <laughs> retrain fat cells to open up. What, what the problem with the modern American diet is, especially with all the processed carbohydrate, is that it, it, it increases insulin levels and chronic inflammation. Those force fat cells into a feeding frenzy. They suck up too many calories, leaving too few for the rest of the body. That's why we get hungry. That's why we get tired. Just cutting calories makes that situation worse. It doesn't address the fundamental problem, which is that uh, the fat cells have been on calorie storage overdrive. So, so, if, so if, if someone eats a 100-calorie kale salad for lunch and, and you know, adds 20 calories of low-fat dressing on that, there just isn't enough calorie in the blood, which is going to cause their body to be like, I, I don't have enough energy right now. It's a crisis. And this whole cycle you talked about would happen versus if they threw a bunch of guacamole on top of it, had enough calories, and then would actually not have this metabolic disarray happen. Well, you know... Certainly, if you just don't get enough calories, the body is going to fight back. Right. Um, but the problem in America isn't that we're not getting enough. We're obviously getting too much, but they're not staying in our bloodstream. So the calories that we eat from highly processed carbohydrates, especially if there's not enough fat and protein, um, they flood our bloodstream temporarily for an hour or two after the meal. but insulin shoots up to try to push those calories into storage. And by three or four hours, we're worse off than we started. All those calories have been locked away in storage, importantly including fat, and there aren't enough in the bloodstream. So even though we think of obesity as a state of excess, I think it's physiologically more akin to a state of starvation. The body is, the brain and the the rest of the body is starving because fat cells are hoarding more than their fair share of calories. And the only way to solve that problem, you know, you can't do it by cutting back calories. That makes the fundamental problem worse. The only way to do that is to change what you're eating in order to lower insulin and calm chronic inflammation. When that happens, the, cat, the fat cells open up, the body floods with calories. The brain says, wow. I mean, in some cases, it's like the brain gets a sense of sufficiency and satiety for the first time in years. And so it then allows metabolism to speed up. And um, you naturally will eat less, but this way with your body's cooperation rather than with your body kicking and screaming. Have you ever been fat? You know, I um, was lean and athletic through my adolescence and, and 20s. Um, I went to medical school just a little bit later because I'd taken off some time, traveled a bit. And I started to notice um, my late 20s, maybe early 30s, that I was, I'd been putting on a pound or two a year. And you know, so for the first few years, it didn't much matter because I started out pretty lean. I just got an extra larger pant size or two. But then it kept going. Now, by this point, uh, well into my 30s, I'd already gotten interested in obesity research, although I was at that point more focused in the basic laboratory doing genetic studies. And I reached the BMI of 25, you know, and I realized 
I had a little bit of an identity crisis. You know, I'm an obesity researcher and I'm about to cross <laughs> the threshold into overweight. And fortunately, just at that time, um, I came across new theories of carbohydrate, you know, uh, including this notion of glycemic index, how carbohydrate digests and affects our hormones. Um, I spent a few months buried in the Countway Library, which is Harvard's medical library. And back then, it wasn't all yeah. online. You know, yeah. you went to this musty, you know, this literally, you know, dust, dusty floor, two floors underground. And I found articles that dated back, in some cases, to the 1800s. And I just absorbed it all. I put together um, theories that have been out there. Yeah. I put them together in my own way. So I'm not suggesting that this is by any means all my creation. You know, this is building yeah. on research that has been around for decades, um, if not a century. And then I both designed experiment to do um, in the laboratory, but I also did an N of one experiment on myself. I increased the fat content. I'd always eaten pretty healthy from a standard perspective, but I'd eaten a lot of, you know, a lot of whole grains and, you know, not too much sugar, but it was a pretty high carbohydrate diet. So I w greatly increased fat. I cut back on the refined carbs. I increased protein a bit and no attempt at all to lose weight. Three months later, I dropped 20 pounds yeah. and three waist sizes. Um, and it was, that this was without effort, right? No, it's, it's, it's really <laughs> remarkable, yeah. you know, and I, I, we have testimonials in the book uh -huh. from the, we did a, a pilot, uh, nation, uh, uh, national pilot of the books program uh, with a couple hundred, over a couple hundred people for 16 weeks. And um, most of them report the same thing, that before the first pound was shed, the experience, the cravings just seem to vanish. Just like that study, the brain imaging. Yeah. It's like a metabolic switch is being flipped. Just cravings turn off. People, in every story in the book is, you know, I'm a scientist. And a, so I'm not creating any, um, I'm not making any of these stories up, um, you know, as sometimes is fashionable. Every story is people's yeah. actual experience. We have their first name and last initial, age and location. And, you know, you'll see that people describe feeling like their metabolism is shifting. Yeah. And then the rest is kind of automatic. The body, it's like you've been in an overfeeding study. Your body finally recognizes that it's got too many calories and it tries to get rid of those extra calories in the way that it knows how. It diminishes your cravings and it speeds up your metabolism. And people find that they can lose weight without the struggle. Now, it might be slightly slower than if you restricted calories. Clearly, if you cut back calories 1,000 a day, you're going to lose weight fast. But then you're going to be struggling for the rest of your life to keep it off. Yeah. This, is a, this may be a little slower, although there were some people who lost two to three pounds a week at first. Um, other people lost a half a pound a week. But they're eating lush satisfying rich foods as much as they want to feel satisfied yeah. they're snacking when they're hungry and so you're re you're reestablishing a collaboration with your body which for many people you know has been there's been alienation so the first step is to sort of re um relink our behavior uh, our biology and our and 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 our diet I 
I had learned when, when I was obese, like to sort of value the feeling of hunger. Like, wow, I'm really hungry. Like that makes me a good person, right? <laughs> Which actually it doesn't, it makes you hangry and you <laughs> hypoglybitchy or whatever you want to call it. But you, you really, you're not nice when you're hungry, but you're like, okay, I'm, I'm doing this. Like I'm, I'm going to take one for the team. And, and it's really a self-destructive state. And it's one that, that's taught because well, by self-denial, you're supposed to somehow be helping your biology, but it turns out you're not helping your personality, you're not helping your biology, you're not helping your hormones, and you're burning huge amounts of, of energy on fighting off cravings, and you lose eventually anyway, and then you kind of feel like a failure. So it, it, it's interesting, you've got people eating as much as they want and not feeling hunger. And, and what I came to believe is that you know, hunger is a, is a powerful, useful signal from your body that you're doing something wrong, and it's that, oh my God, you should eat and you should eat the right stuff. And when you do that, your hunger should go away for a long period of time. And if the hunger comes back quickly, then you did something wrong because you didn't eat enough, you didn't eat the right stuff. And that, that hunger is really, really useful, but it's not something to treasure because it's gonna make you thinner. That kind of thinness comes at huge cost biologically and, and like energetically or emotionally. I you know I agree with, I completely agree with you. And um, you know, uh, uh, we have a kind of a five hour rule. If you eat a meal and you were feeling sati- not overstuffed initially, but then not famished several hours later, if your energy remains good, your mental clarity remains good, then you ate the right amount and you ate the right type of food. Yes. And if not, it's a learning up. Yeah. It's just an experiment. You, it's, you know, you're the biohacker. So that's, you know, that's the opportunity to revised. One other thing I wanted to add, you know, uh, I guess, I don't know if this is literally true, but I, I heard that, uh, like the native Americans have 20 names for corn Mm -hmm. because that's so important. That was so important to certain, uh, native American, um, societies that were agricultural and the, uh, Inuits in, um, the North had 20 names for snow, all these different subtle gradations. You know, I really, I think we need more words for hunger. Yes. You know, <laughs> hunger isn't this all the same thing. You know, there's a hunger where you're desperately hungry. Yeah, you're desperate. A, a you're craving. in desperate need for yeah. food. You're craving. Your energy is crashing. You feel a basic, like, instability in your core. Mm-hmm. That's because primal brain areas are, uh, at, are being threatened by lack of calories in your bloodstream. There's another kind of hunger, which you get after eating a really just the right, you get hit that nutrient ratio just right for lunch. And maybe you're especially active in the afternoon and then um, dinner rolls along and you feel the stimulating interest in food. It's not making you, it's not bringing you down and making you desperate. It's actually waking you up and creating a, an appetite for good food. So those are profoundly different states. Um, one is a state of good metabolic functioning, but your brain saying, you know what, now's the time to recharge. And the other saying, you know what, we've got a metal, medical emergency going. David, I'm so glad you, you said that, uh, especially with, with your great background in, in research. Uh, because those are are fundamentally different states. I never knew that there was the the state. I, I call it the the I could eat state. 
Like if, if I do the most powerful hunger suppressor breakfast I know of is, is unquestionably bulletproof coffee. Uh, and there's a fat signaling thing in there. Uh, but if I do that, when lunchtime rolls around, I get this kind of like, you know, I could eat like, like it's, it's one in the afternoon or, or something. I've gone five hours like, yeah, uh, but I don't have to, I'm not going to die if I don't eat. I, I just, I, I could eat and I'm going to feel good if I eat. And I had never experienced that in my life as a, a former obese person because every meal was like, okay, I think I can make it or maybe I'll just have you know three peanut M&Ms or whatever it is. I just have to have something. And, and that's why every office has little bowls of candy around because people are so like broken, they, they can't do it. Uh, so thank you so much. You're the, the first person I've, I've heard put it that way. But the difference in state to, to feel liberated from the I'm gonna die if I don't eat state, for me, I don't think I ever experienced that till sometime after the age of 30, I'm like, wow. <laughs> like, food is not in control anymore because I'm not constantly thinking about the next meal. And you put cravings right in the, the, the title or on the cover of your book, and it's, it's absolutely true. What you're doing with is craving versus hunger. And, and maybe there's five more words for hunger that, that we could like architect or, or come out with, but man, I, I'm so glad you said that, so thank you. Thank you. Um, what about snacking, though? Because I, I, you said you should be able to go snacking. five hours, but you can snack. But if you need, if if you yeah. need to snack, does, does that mean you failed and it's okay? Or what's your take yeah. on that? No, no, snacking is totally great. Okay. Um, and especially in the beginning of uh, a, you know, a new diet, a weight change. You know, I'm I'm arguing that calories should never be the focus, but we all have different calorie requirements. The question is. Who's in control of the calorie balance? Mm -hmm. Is it our bodies or is it a diet doctor? Um, and I argue it should be our, our bodies. And so it may take a while to figure out what, um, how much food you need and how you match your food amount to different stages of weight loss. During the active stage of weight loss, your body is burning stored fat. So you're obviously, you're actually, you know, I, I just kind of thought of it, this for the first time. Weight loss, you're on a high-fat diet, you know, your body's your burning fat, <laughs> um, you know, and that rate of weight loss and fat burning will change through different stages of the diet, and so your needs are going to change. Um, in addition, physical activity level is, of course, going to change your needs, and there are other variable vari variations on physiology that are probably outside of our control. So the way we know is not to get a calorie app that tells us when to stop and then, you know, abdicate responsibility. It's to tune into our body and its most important metabolic signals. The hu hunger is top of the list. So if you're hungry, eat well. You know, if you find that, you know, you really think you probably should have lasted longer, that's a good opportunity to reassess the meal, but then absolutely snack. Uh, I, I agree with you, by the way. Uh, absolutely snack if the last meal made you hungry. And, and I've gotten my own nutrition dialed in so much that like, I, snacking is very, very unusual. And if I do need a snack, it's because I either ate a suspect food or there was a food quality issue with the last meal. And I find that one of the things that causes a, a blood sugar crash is if all of a sudden you have some toxin exposure, even paint fumes or something like that, because all of a sudden the liver's demanding glucose that would have been available for the brain. It's like, hey, I got to oxidize some really bad stuff, get this out of here. 
So I'm like, okay, I'm walking along. I should have had stable energy all afternoon because I ate the right amounts of the right foods. And I didn't consciously think about that. I composed the food right, but I ate the amount that my body wanted. You know, I had extra salad if I wanted extra salad and I didn't feel guilty for it, right? Or extra meat. It doesn't matter. That's what the body wanted. But then sometimes there's a crash and that's when snacking saves you. Because if you don't snack, then you go into that deeper and deeper and deeper hunger. Then you just burn more and more willpower, right? And, and so that's why you're an advocate of snacking. But would you advocate snacking if you're not hungry? No, I mean, okay. you never, you know, there's no reason to force yourself to eat. But, um, you know, people in the first phase of our program, we have a three-phase program. Uh-huh. The first phase is high fat, 50% fat, because we're asking people not to give up all carbohydrate. It's This is not an Atkins right. diet. Um, I think some people actually do need, you know, people, if you've got severe metabolic problems, um, you really may benefit most quickly by severely limiting carbohydrate. But most people, I think, don't actually have to go to that extreme. It, it's some ketones, um, right? <laughs> but not massive ketones. Is that the target? So, so, so we start out at 50% fat. We ask people to give up for just two weeks all grains, potatoes, and added sugar, okay. except a small amount of added sugar and real dark chocolate, minimum of 70%. <laughs> How could you not like 85%. that? <laughs> 85% better. But so to give that up for people who are used to eating a lot of carbohydrate and can't imagine going a day, let alone, you know, meal without eating that, eating those processed carbs, that high fat richness really does the trick. You know, people just, you know, they used to be craving um, cookies in the afternoon and they find that it just turns off. And sometimes after a week or two, they'll go to a party, they'll pick up a cookie and they'll say, it's okay, but yeah. I'm not sure what I ever saw in this. The brain is changing. So that first phase, 50% fat, 25% carbohydrate, 25% protein, just two weeks. Um, and that is a time when a lot of powerful changes are happening in the body. And so we specifically ask people to snack, we don't, you should never force it, but the body's been in a state of starvation. Mm-hmm. So we want to take the body out of the starvation mode. And the best way to do that is to make sure that there are plenty of calories. Yeah. If anything, we want to err on the side of too many calories. I mean, what weight loss diet says err on the side of it, overeating? It's, that's what we, that's what we it's recommend. It's beautiful to do that because it sets you free from cravings you've had your whole fat life. Like it, it's beautiful. That's right. That's and, right. And then, so that's just two weeks though. And then at phase two, we add back whole kernel grains. Um, so unprocessed grains. So you're not concerned it's about just, gluten or any of the other toxins that come in grains? Yeah. We have um, options. Okay. We have gluten-free options for everybody and grains are not required by any means. And at the same time, you know, this is a book for, for mainstream America. Yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, I don't see America as coming off of grains entirely. And in fact, they're just coming from a conference with uh, Boyd Eaton, who is the uh, paleo mm-hmm. fellow. And, you know, I mean, we all recognize that with 7 billion humans going up to 10 billion uh, pretty soon, we need grains. We're not all going to be hunter-gatherers. Um, uh, but I think there's a way to incorporate grains in the diet that have a that add to cul- culinary variability, um, but don't undermine your metabolism for, yeah. you know, and, and I think having 
gluten-free options is really important. You have a, uh, you have a great point there, and, and thanks, for, thanks for calling that out. There's, uh, there's, by acknowledging the limitations of grains, uh, but then using them intelligently, we can also start uh, creating grains that are more beneficial for people. Uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like, like if we absolutely. if we know the good fact, stuff, we can grow more with good stuff. But right now, they're like growing extra high gluten because it's easier or because it tastes better in pastries or something. But we're kind of hybridizing in the wrong direction. Is is what I'm there's saying. so many? I mean, they're really we think of grains as the modern, uh, highly processed wheat, you know, which is bad in every possible yeah. way. Um, but you know, there have been dietary patterns consistent with great longevity and really good health that has in, have incorporated grains. Um, they're typically minimally processed. Um, and like Mediterranean diet has all sorts of, uh, or, you know, in, in Asia, there are rice. parts of Asia with very interesting kinds of, well, brown rice, uh, is a whole kernel without gluten, but you know, there's quinoa, which technically isn't a grain, uh, but it, Kind of, we treat it like it. It's relatively higher in protein. It's gluten free. Uh, buckwheat is gluten free. Um, you know, the uh, teff, mm-hmm. uh, amaranth. Uh, there, there are all sorts of wonderful, very much more nutritious grains than we know. And so we are trying to broaden the possibility. But there are both gluten free and grain free options for people throughout the program. Awesome. And then in phase three. That's where you can begin to add back a little bit of processed carbohydrate. We just published a study in obesity that uh, the journal Obesity that looked at uh, what happens to metabolism after a month on a low carbohydrate diet, and we find that it seems to reset the beta cells, uh, so that the beta cells on a high carbohydrate diet are have a hair trigger. These are the in, ready to fire. These are the insulin secreting cells in the pancreas. Just for for people who That's might not know, yeah, cells, the, the pancreas, They've got a hair trigger to release insulin. After a month on a low carbohydrate diet, they seem to calm down, and they calm down in a way that lasts even after adding back carbohydrate. So they wind up secreting less in response to the same amount of carbohydrate. Wow! Uh, caused the big response earlier. So some people may be able to then um, trickle in a little bit, you know, a few treats and sweets. I mean, you know, if you can, if your body can handle it, um, you know, why not have a pastry when you're traveling in Paris or, you know, a little uh, white pasta when you're traveling in Italy or, you know, uh, ice cream on a special occasion. There are some people for whom their biology is that uh, if they start eating those things, it's going to start triggering cravings, and a vicious cycle of weight gain. But by that point, they've discovered that feeling good, um, having control over hunger, is so much better than the fleeting pleasure of those processed carbohydrates that it's not easy to, it's not hard to, it's not hard to just let it. It's a priceless feeling. Like like when you're like, wow, I I have resilience today. I, I can do what I want. My brain will obey me. Uh, my energy isn't crashing, and someone offers you a cookie, you're like, I don't care what's in that cookie. Uh, and, and at least the process I went through uh, as I was losing the 100 pounds and, and keeping it off was it used to be like, I'll just do like a cheat day, Friday night, I'll, I'll just have like a loaf of bread, the crunchy French bread, uh, which is relatively high glycemic, even though it was it was whole grain. And, and 
then the next day I'd be okay. The day after, it's like horrible cravings. And after a while, I'm like, you know what? It's just not worth it because my energy bounces around for several days after I do that. But now, this is you know years later. Grain still does like gluten specifically still causes cravings, but I can tolerate sugar. Like my metabolism is fixed. I, yeah. I can go to a kid's birthday and have a gluten-free slice of a birthday cake. It's probably not the optimal food to, for stable energy and feeling great and having less inflammation. I, I might see a little muffin top from some ingredient yeah. or whatever, but I can tolerate it without turning into a monster and like just, and, and yeah. You, you know, that's important that we, you know, if we're talking to not just, you know, foodies like us, you know, and the 1% of the population that, uh, you know, biohacks, um, mm-hmm. you know, we, we want there to be some flexibility, but the key is flexibility according to your individual ability to handle it, which is right. not going to be the same as somebody else. It's going to vary with age. It's going to vary with your physical activity level, with your genes, um, with what you've been doing for the last 20 years. And, um, and so we, in the phase three of our program, we give people symptom trackers Lovely. that you plot out. Um, and you can then see, all right, I was able to, I was doing fine when I added this and I was doing fine when I, oh, here, that's where I started. Uh, interesting. Like I'm now seeing the craving. I'm seeing this and that. And so then you just dial it a little bit back and that's not set in stone. Maybe a year later, you, you'll readjust it. But if you know for right then, that's the right prescription for you. So, so we, we have a lot of commonalities in our, our thinking about food. And one of the things uh, that's free that we use, and I want to get your honest opinion about it, is it's an app called Food Detective uh, that I put out there. And it, it you, you track it, you type in what you ate, but it looks at changes in your heart rate after you eat for the next 90 minutes. And if you eat something that, that you're sensitive to, which is going to cause an adrenal response, which is going to cause cravings via the, the pathway you just described at the beginning of, of our conversation, uh, that if, if you can have this predictable rise in heart rate and you can see which foods do it because you kept a little journal and then you got your heart rate, that maybe you should not eat those foods that are triggering the adrenal response. In other words, allow your body to avoid those for a while so you can calm that down. Is there merit to that approach in, in the things you understand or, or in conjunction with the symptom tracker that you're working with, or is that kind of well, different? You know, it's, it's an interesting theory. I'm a scientist, so, you know, when I hear an interesting idea, my first thought is, you know, it would be a good thing to test. You know, you may have data um, on it, and um, or, you know, that might be something that we could we could look at yeah, I can send you and, some of the research. It, it's based on, yeah. uh, it's some relatively old research, like you had some of the older stuff when they they didn't have some of the the very like, yeah. like focused looks where you sort of exclude all these variables, where they were looking at at systemic behavioral things. Um, this was one of the the first ways to detect food allergies before we had blood panels to do that. So yeah. I'll send you some notes after afterwards on that because I, I think there's uh, what's the guy's name Broca Broca test I want to call it, but I, I could have his name wrong off the top of my head. But it's it, it's an interesting thing and, and it's something that helped me dial in. Okay. Uh, you know, if, if I'm having a problem with that food, I'll be able to see it. And it's like, why am I kind of feeling a little faster than you measure it? Oh, there is something going on, but it's just not an obvious thing. In your case, you've got a symptom tracker. Is it an online thing or is it a a thing in the book? We it's, uh, in the book, we, we, we're going to, it's available. It'll be available online for people to download so you can do it electronically. And, um, you know, maybe, uh, you know, if uh, somebody wants to do this with us, we could make an app 
um, you know, make a symptom tracker app. It's based on five symptoms and you want to look at how those five symptoms change in coordination with what you're eating. Yeah. And so, and then you also look at your, what's happening to your weight. Um, you know, so it's okay. hunger, cravings, energy level, um, general sense of well-being, um, you know, duration of satiety, and you put that all together and come up with a kind of an integrated picture of how what you're eating is actually affecting you. Uh, it, it might be interesting to connect you up with uh, Jonathan Baylor, who may even have an app like that. He's working with this uh, sane thing around satiety of foods. Uh, he's been a guest on the show, so I, I can make an email introduction afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it, 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 there's there's something to be said here around looking at data. When I first started noticing the changes in my energy, I, I started out like not looking at my fat. I'd, I'd failed at the fat thing, but I was looking at my brain because I was having such energy crashes and taking smart drugs and just trying to prop up my energy. And I started taking notes. Um, I had a, a work notebook. And when you work in Silicon Valley, we all use these engineering notebooks because then if there's ever a lawsuit, you can see if someone tore out a page. And that way you've kind of protected your intellectual property. So in the margins on these books, I would like energy crash two o'clock. What did I have for lunch? And I'd write it down. And I did this for a long time until I just built this awareness of, wait, I'm causing these. They're not random and they're not just, oh, I should pay more attention to this meeting. It's like, I can't pay more attention to this meeting because my brain won't do it. And it wasn't a personal failing. It was an energy failing. And when I finally just got that through my head and figured out, oh yeah, if I eat this cookie three hours later or uh, two days later, whatever the time was, uh, the zombie mode's going to happen. That, that was really important. And, and here it is. You've got it in a book. And, and that's why I'm, I'm such a big supporter about this. Uh, uh, and I'm, I'm, I'm just so pleased. I, I can't wait till this comes out in January. Now, uh, I had a couple other questions for you here. Uh, one of them is around a metric that I learned about when I was trying to figure out why I didn't gain weight when I cranked up the butter in my Bulletproof coffee, I ended up spending a time where I was doing between 4,000 and 4,500 calories a day. And my plan was to, to do overfeeding, but to overfeed and to maybe gain three pounds when the math said I should gain 20 pounds. But like, well, wait, why is there such a big disparity? And I was eating very, very low carbohydrates. I was eating you know, tons of, of Bulletproof coffee and tons of steak and, and tons and tons of vegetables, but not starchy vegetables. And I ended up losing weight on that number of calories. And I was like, okay, what's going on? So as I'm digging in on all this, I found a metric from the, the agriculture industry, like the feedlot industry. And they have a metric called feed efficiency. And they found that by administering antibiotics, they had a 30% change in feed efficiency. That means on exactly the same number of calories, the cows got 30% fatter when they had tiny amounts of these drugs. Doesn't that, the existence of that kind of violate this physics of calories in, calories out? You know, I think we, we really agree, of course, uh, that um, you know, calorie, the calorie balance model works well if you're a toaster oven. Um, <laughs> That's a great tweet you know, right but, there. <laughs> but, you know, but humans aren't machines. Yeah. And so what happens is that we adapt to changes in calories. When calories go down, our metabolism slows. And when they go up, our metabolism speeds up you know, over time. And so we adapt to it. And um, as a consequence, and that we're not even getting into perhaps an even more interesting question is what happens to body composition 
you know, we did a study with rodents. Um, I don't like to do a lot of animal studies, but it's hard to control people's lifestyles totally. You can't just lock them up for six months. And, and prisoner diet studies are looked down upon in the West. They, no, yeah, yeah, that's I, not I, cool. They, yeah. Although, frankly, yeah. you might be doing better than what they're feeding them anyway. So <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other discussion, right? Another discussion. And so we gave um, these rodents the same proteins, fat, and carbohydrate. Just again, one fast-acting carbs, the other slow-acting carbs. Um, in both cases, starches, just fast-digesting starch or slow-digesting starch. And we found that the animals eating the fast-digesting starch, they started gaining weight excessively. So what we did was we did what you're supposed to according to the calorie balance model, which is cut back calories. And we did that, and we kept the weight gain of the two groups the same. But they, the, the fast-acting carb group so gain the same amount of weight with fewer calories, which means that its metabolism was slowing down. Then at the end of the study, we analyzed body composition. We used something called tritiated water. It's an uh, isotope. Okay. And that goes through aqueous water, but not fat. And we found that at the same weight, the animals that had the fast-acting carb had 70% more fat. Oh, wow. So if they're the same weight and you have that much more fat, guess what you have less of? I have less Lean muscle, right. Specifically muscle. So this is, gets at what um, has been called TOFI. Um, thin, outside, fat, inside. Oh, the, the skinny fat the, thing, right. That's right. Even if you have a normal BMI, uh, you may be at major risk for weight-related complications because of your body composition and your metabolism. And so this is another way. When we eat calories, do those calories wind up going to muscle and being oxidized? They get oxidized or burned because you're going to be feeling energetic. And you'll be, even if you don't work out and get on a Stairmaster, you're going to be fidgeting. You're going to be wanting to burn off those calories. Or are those calories being directed to fat cells? And are they serving only to cause more obese, you know, more fat development. Okay. So that's a really key thing. None of this is explained by the calorie balance model. It has to do with the metabolic effects of calories. And, you know, the chief culprit here, I think, is the refined carbohydrates. But beyond that, we want to get the balance of protein, fat, and carbohydrate right. Um, and then we want to bring in some lifestyle supports because other things besides diet affects fat cells. Uh, stress, sleep deprivation, and being too sedentary. And I don't mean like not getting on a Stairmaster. I just mean spending too much time sitting. So we, we want to get people to get engage in enjoyable physical activities, not to burn off calories, but to tone their metabolism. Very, very well said. Um, I don't see you at a standing desk, though. Uh, I'm fidgeting. <laughs> okay. Uh, I, uh, I use a stand desk, one of those electric ones that goes up and down. Uh, I'm, uh, I've been helping the, the company get going and it's, uh, it's funny. I've, I sit down for Bulletproof radio and cause we just built a studio, but I'm thinking about changing it to be a standing studio because sometimes I'll record uh, two of these in a row and like, I don't want to sit all day because I, I I'm fidgeting too, because it, it's, it's important. You, know, you cross your legs different ways and, and you move your body differently because if you sit still all the time, it's, it's just bad. Like, like, and it does contribute to weight gain in a way that's independent of exercise, right? 
Um, what do you think of, of sanding desks or using treadmill desks and things like that? Like how important is that in the overall scheme of things? You know, a study just came out. I, uh, you know, I'm new to social media, but I, uh, I actually, I'm not sure if I Facebooked it or tweeted it. Um, <laughs> I did one of those two. Um, it was in the New York times just, uh, just very recently. And, um, what they did was look at people who were given standing desks, you know, just as you mentioned. And not unexpectedly, their energy expenditure, their calorie burn went up when they were using, their, their calorie burn went up when they were using the, uh, standing, uh, the standing desk. But guess what happened later? Uh, the they ate more because... Expenditure, <laughs> well, uh, they, I don't think they looked, okay. but they looked at their energy expenditure and it plummeted later in the day. So if you're standing more during the daytime, you're going to be sitting or lying <laughs> more later. Now, why would that be? Well, it may be just the same as calorie is eating, that if you cut back calories now, you're probably going to overeat later unless you alter the basic fundamental equation. Um, and there are other studies, and I, I actually have a section in the book that reviews this, why exercise doesn't cause weight loss. You know, <laughs> exercise is good uh, for a lot of reasons, but uh, short, of, short of marathon level, weight loss just isn't one of the benefits. It, and that's because you know, when you work out, you burn off more calories, but then you tend to compensate. So our activity level, like our appetite, may be regulated by parts of our brain. And so the only way around that is to shift the set point. Um, And the set point is shifted not by just burning off calories and sticking to the same diet. You have to alter what you eat and these other uh, lifestyle influences on fat cells. That makes uh, it makes great sense, and it it gives me great pleasure uh, that that here you are with a, a lifetime of research and this working with you know Boston Children's Hospital and, and working with Harvard and saying things like exercise isn't a great way to lose weight. And I grew up thinking, well, geez, if I just can exercise an hour and a half a day, six days a week, I'll finally lose this weight. And it never worked, and it made me so mad. And if I go on a low-fat diet, it's going to work. And you could lose 20 pounds and gain 30 and lose 30 and gain 40 and, and all that. And, and so thanks for, for doing and, the research and, and, and putting this well, out there. Yeah, thank you. And, um, you know, it's also you just think of the human toll it, that this calorie balance model has taken on us psychologically. It, it's one of the most you know, all, cruel and evil things you can do, especially if you apply it to kids. Yeah, if <sighs> all calories are alike, then it's your fault, your fat. Yeah for not being able to control your calorie balance. And guess who gets um, carte blanche? The food industry. Yep. You know, because there are no bad foods. You know, they can market junk foods. It's fine to eat chips and cookies and crackers and sugary drinks. Just make sure to balance that uh, and burn it off. Uh, even if you could um, burn off the calories in a big Coke, very few of us you know, actually can. Um, but even if you could, you're still going to be in a worse off metabolic state. Yeah. It, it's not sustainable and it, it's not a way to live. And so getting this out there into our, our consciousness so that people stop being surprised 
when when you say to the waitress, I'm sorry, two asparagus spears isn't going to cut it. That's not a side of vegetables. And no, I, I didn't want you know the quadruple helping of macaroni and cheese that you put on there. <laughs> just just make, making these shifts so that we're having quality food in the right amounts. Uh, when it becomes the norm, we're going to look like people looked in the 1970s. Like I, I love looking at TV shows from the 70s because everyone, their bodies are shaped differently. And even the people who aren't- Especially children. Oh yeah, like they're, they're not in shape the way like a super ripped, like lean, muscular, kind of steroid, dehydrated kids, guy. Kids look like rails back then. Yeah. I mean, they really, most kids were just really thin. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, you know, the heavy kid was the relatively rare exception, unfortunately would oftentimes get, you know, bullied and picked on back then just as, just as today. Yeah. Um, I, I, as that you know, heavy kid, I can tell you the heavy kid will sit on you if you bully them. So don't do that. But anyway, <laughs> is it, what, what were you saying? It, 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 but I think you know the basic point is, it's you know we have to reverse the psychological toll taken yeah. on people from the calorie balance model. It's not your fault. You're fat. You know, that's not a message that you'll ever hear from the food industry because they want to blame the problem on you and not the massive infusion of industrial processed foods into the American diet. But, you know, if you are eating these foods, uh, you're going to be programmed biologically to gain weight. And it's, you know, even you may be following conventional nutritional recommendations, which were wrong. They, they were, and it's not your fault that those recommendations were wrong. And, um, and it's not your fault that you can't, stay on a diet, on a calorie-restricted diet, because it's really more about biology than willpower. And I think that this is ultimately um, a psychologically liberating message, that it's just like any other medical condition. You know, we wouldn't blame someone for a fever and just say, wait a second, you've got, you know, it's just a question of heat in and heat out. Get into an ice bath if you've got a fever and your body temperature will go down. Well, it will. But guess what? How many people can do that when they have a fever? You're going to be severely shivering. Your blood vessels will be constricting. You'll feel miserable. Yeah. You give somebody an aspirin, and the fever comes down naturally. Give someone the right diet and a few other supports. The body weight comes down naturally. It's a great message. And the food industry, it needs disrupting because it's broken. And that's one of the things I'm here to do. I architected the, the Bulletproof bar, uh, these these uh, protein bars, you know, the collagen protein and, and tons of brain octane. I got tired of eating things that made me hungry. So I engineered something that is designed to not make me feel hungry. And like I, uh, in fact, I, I'm looking at putting a money back guarantee on them right now and saying, all right, <laughs> eat this. And if you're still hungry two hours later, like either you just ran a marathon or uh, that there's something else going on because it doesn't happen. And that's, the exact opposite of what a food company does if they want to make money. Because a food company, was okay, 100 calorie high glycemic bar, you eat that, you'll eat another one an hour later and another one an hour later. And each time it's cha-ching, cha-ching. But if you make a bar that feeds someone for a long period of time, then you sell a lot less. And I think that, that that's changes the whole economics of the food industry if, if you sell food that makes you full versus food that makes you hungry. And there's a, a dawning awareness of people who are learning what you've just taught in your book, which is that 
okay, if I experience that craving feeling, the one we talked about before, I did something and they're gonna look back in your application or in the, the journal that you give them, and they're gonna say, oh look, I ate the processed food, I had the craving, and they're gonna put two and two together, and then the processed food that used to be valuable because it's addictive becomes valueless, and people will refuse to eat it, and then it's no longer a good economic model. So when people get the awareness that you're teaching, uh, it will disrupt the food industry, absolutely will do it, and people will choose foods that they don't need as much of, and foods that leave them really satisfied, and, and that will change the entire ecosystem because we'll grow different foods in order to feed people that way. So that's what's coming, and, and the big food companies, they don't have a choice about it. It's not, it's not theirs know, anymore. The epilogue of my, of my book, uh, you know, the book is really based on trying to deliver the science in the first part and then a program for people to follow, but the epilogue of the book um, takes on the political and policy issues. Yes. Um, you know, it considers our diet and our health as matters of national security. Um, if we don't do something about diet and obesity-related diseases, you know, we're looking at massively increasing budget deficits, which I, I argue is contributing to the political polarization in Washington. Democrats and Republicans are fighting because there's less and less discretionary spending, all those resources are being siphoned off into diet-related disease. And that we really have to uh, become all advocates and activists, um, voting with the ballot and also voting with the fork. It, it's amazing what happens uh, when, when you start paying attention to what those things are doing to you. I, I tend to think there's so much fighting in Congress because they're all eating processed foods, but maybe, <laughs> maybe it's more complex than that. Um, there is... Or yeah, maybe it's the the people who vote them into office are eating but, all the process. There you go. And if we we get off, you know, if we raise our consciousness, um, you know, what's the old saying? Uh, people lead, the leaders will follow. Mm -hmm. You know, eating is a eating well is a radical political act. It is indeed. We transform our health. We become role models. We influence the food supply. Um, and if enough of us are doing it and starting to demand, like, why aren't we hearing? You know, in the political debates, why aren't we hearing at least one question about food policy? I, I guess I'm just going to have to choose my plate, so to speak. And <laughs> it's just, it, it's not okay to see the disconnect between what's recommended and what works. And so, so thanks for, for taking your, your huge body of work uh, and just the amount of, of academic research and credentials that you have and then put writing a book that says incredibly radical things like, exercise isn't the best way to lose weight. And that one statement, which, which is that overeating doesn't make you fat, but getting fat makes you overeat, that is seriously radical stuff and it's awesome. Now, Thank you. you're very welcome. And, and there's one more question that I wanna ask you. And this is a question I've asked every guest on the show. And, and it, Am I in trouble? You're not in trouble at all. It, it, it's given all the stuff you've learned, if someone came to you tomorrow and said, look, uh, not just from a nutritional perspective, but from a life perspective, I want to perform better at everything I do, right? So I want to, I want to be able to sleep better. I want to be a better mom. I want to be a better CEO, whatever it is they want to do, but I want to kick more ass at life. What are the top three recommendations that you would offer for that person? Well, you know, as much as my day job and my life revolves around food, um, we'll, we'll maybe make that, you know, number one, but we also have to re realize that the you know the best diet in the world um, can't fill emotional yeah. emptiness. 
So, you know, we need to be eating a, you know, number one, a whole foods diet that is deeply satisfying to us, nourishing to us, and are, are going to help our body lose weight, uh, find, a, find its natural weight, whatever that happens to be, and can get us out of this endless cycle of fad popular diets and all the suffering that that's created. Um, we need, I think, number two, we all really need to manage stress. You know, we're just living, and I, you know, guilty as charged you know, we, you know, we're all driving very hard. Uh, we're putting our bodies into this anabolic state. You know, our fat cells are in an anabolic state from too much insulin. You know, that means it's, you know, it's being forced, you know, to store. But that stress is also affecting our fat cells, our, our brain. So we need to be reducing stress um, and sleeping better. And I know that's a central part of your um, you know, your work. And then, you know, the third part is love and connection and community. You know, mm -hmm. we can be really healthy and de-stressed, but life gets pretty lonely at the top of a mountain if, you know, you're not a, you know, an enlightened master. So, you know, we need to be building supportive relationships and those relationships not only nourish us, but become the, um, network for social change that feeds back and makes our environment even better so that we can eat even better and feel less stress. I, I love it. Thank you for sharing. Where can people find out more about your work? Um, well, uh, first place is to uh, have a look at our book, uh, Always Hungry, um, with the question mark at the end, uh, which uh, um, comes out uh, January 5th. And, January fifth. Um, that'll be on uh, on Amazon. Can they pre-order it today? Uh, you can pre-order it uh, right away, and we have a promotion that provides some uh, extra um, web specials uh, in advance if you if you pre-order uh, through the website. Uh, the website is uh, drdavidludwig.com. Also, it can be found on Facebook, um, David Ludwig, MD. Okay, and. Twitter as well, David Ludwig, MD. Um, okay. And uh, we and uh, uh, another way to reach us is uh, alwayshungrybook.com. All right. That sounds like that's probably the best place to send people. So to find out more about the book, our conversation is alwayshungrybook.com. And you're going to have your offers for the book there as well. So that's you give right. people a bunch of free web content. So here's a, a suggestion that I would have uh, for people listening. Given that uh, December 1st, the Bulletproof, the cookbook comes out, this is uh, something, 125 recipes, which I can guarantee you will be in alignment with the things that are in your book. So when you pick up your coffee, <clears throat> when you pick up your copy, not your coffee, uh, of the Bulletproof cookbook, why don't you also, in exactly the same time in the same shopping cart, pick up a copy of Always Hungry. Because when you do that, that'll associate those two on Amazon. And that way people who are into Bulletproof can understand that Always Hungry has some really cool info about physiology and psychology in there. And other people who shop for either of the books can find both of them together because these are books that belong together because they have some really similar philosophies. And they're both about this idea of, look, you shouldn't have cravings all the time and there's things you can do. So add the cookbook in there because the cookbook's going to help you do the things that are in Always Hungry, which are going to help you feel better. And you've got your own set of good recipes in there and you'll give away some other free stuff on your website, alwayshungry.com. 
And you can never have too many great recipes. Exactly. And I'll make sure to send you a copy of the cookbook as well as soon as we get one. Awesome. Uh, David, thanks so much for being on Bulletproof Radio. Thanks for your work. And thanks for stepping out on a limb and saying these radical statements like food quality matters more than calories and exercise isn't the best way to lose weight. Uh, and uh, I, I very much resonate with what you're saying. My own life has shown me that, that, that your research is accurate and that it's actionable and it's useful and it's actually something people can implement. So thanks for going out there and thanks for doing it. Have an awesome day. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, congratulations on you know your own transformation and uh, your dedication to to the health of others as well. Thanks. Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.